Welcome to the Holy Sparks Podcast. Our mission is to illuminate the brightest lights in the Jewish world and beyond so that we elevate the Holy Sparks within us and make the world around us a better place. I'm your host, Saul Kay. If you're looking for inspiration, edutainment, or simply want to discover people doing amazing things in and around the Jewish world, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Holy Sparks Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Saul K here. Super excited and grateful for another episode hot off the press. And this one is very time sensitive, coming a few days after an amazing event we did together. But without further ado, let me edify and introduce the woman properly. Rabbi Lori Matskin has led and designed Jewish educational experiences for all ages and settings, such as religious schools, B'nai Mitzvah programs, summer camps, women and family retreats, adult education seminars, Israel trips, and conversion programs. She studied music and Jewish studies at Indiana University, Bloomington, and received rabbinic ordination, a master's degree in experiential education, and a certificate in nonprofit management for rabbis, all from the AJU Ziegler School in LA. Rabbi Matskin served as the Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Kolomath in Palo Alto for seven years, the Family Educator for PJ Library in Silicon Valley, the Mindful Jewish Journeys Educator for the Los Gatos JCC spanning six years, and the Rabbi for the Village's Jewish Group in San Jose for almost five years. In 2022, Rabbi Matskin became the Chief Jewish Experience Officer at the Peninsula JCC in Foster City. Welcome to the show. Hi, Saul. I'm happy to be here with you. I'm glad to have you back. You are the first repeat guest on the Holy Sparks podcast. So this is good. We like you. We want to hear more from you. And specifically, what we want to talk about today is we participated in a multi-faith vigil event this past Saturday night, Motsa Shabbat. And we're going to unpack a bit of the process so that people that are interested in doing that right now can have a bit of a blueprint and also talk a little bit about uh, results and things like that. So my first question is, talk about why you wanted to do this type of event here in the Bay Area, as opposed to, let's say, a pro-Israel rally with other clergy or something else. Why a vigil? Great. So why don't we locate where we are in time? I believe today is the 45th day since October 7th, which means the 45th day since our just devastating attack on our Jewish family in the south of Israel and uh, up to 240 hostages taken from babies to elders and everyone in between. And so um, although many in the world are thinking of this time as a state of war, as a state of crisis, which it is, myself and I think many members of our community are are sort of suspended that it's a continuous October 7th. And so um, that very first week, you and I and many of our colleagues and many members of the North Peninsula, the whole Peninsula Jewish community, were at sort of event after event, vigil, rally, Shabbat services. Um, we tried to come together and find strength, find start to make sense, at least to be together and be able to cry and hug. Um, there were events that brought faith leaders who are in relationship with different synagogues. Um, and that was a, a beautiful um, connection to just stand with the Jewish community from the beginning. Personally, I went to six vigils in the first week after October 7th and, and spoke at three of them. It was meaningful and exhausting. And as, as we go, you know, every community has its different, let's say, ebb and flow of times when each organization or, you know, spiritual location needs to be inward focused. 
um, and different times when we need to come together in a broader sense. And so I think in this first month here in the North Peninsula, we've been trying to, to dance and figure out um, how can we serve all the little micro communities. So one synagogue's group of teens, another place's group of Holocaust survivors, another place's group of young Israeli families. And so, of course, we at the JCC and across our community were very, very busy trying to support so many needs. But as, as the weeks went on, I really felt within myself that to bring the PJCC's mission of building bridges of understanding um, just is so, so critical at this time. And I wanted to figure out who our multi-faith partners were going to be in this moment, who was going to be able to um, be in compassion, in relation, and in solidarity with the Jewish community. And so um, starting with a few events that were already set up for multi-faith clergy, I started to um, have that conversation. And to be totally frank, started from a point of sharing our pain, my pain. I you know, cried through several long conversations of testimony, sharing the stories that I have gathered um, during this month. I'm, I'm kind of like a lightning rod because I, I serve I support Israelis in our community and just all sorts of different folks. And to share those stories and be witnessed by fellow clergy was, was cathartic and meaningful. And started to explore in what ways could people stand with the Jewish community? And I, I phrase that as a question because I think um, as clergy leaders across denominations, of course, shalom and peace is the primary, you know, goal that clergy want to support. And um, as the, again, day of October 7th, I don't want to say faded, but went past, we passed that day and the war in Israel and Gaza with Hamas started to unfold, um, it, it began to be more complicated for for many, including our clergy partners. And so I started to ask, what, what does it look like? What, how could you stand with the Jewish community in our mourning, in our pain, in our terror, in our frustration about the narrative being so co-opted um, at this time? And so, so that's really where the evolution of what became our multi-faith solidarity vigil standing with the Jewish community against terrorism and anti-Semitism. That was the official title. That's really where the conversation started. Okay, I got it. Yeah, we're going to get to the narrative, overarching narrative later in the show, for sure. And so for people that don't know, why vigil? Uh, you know, what what is the definition of a vigil and why not call it something else? Mm. I'll start with some semantics. Yeah, so I think a vigil is a bit of a memorial moment, sort of a, a, a non-life um, non cycle related moment of mourning and acknowledgement. And so this idea of sort of finding stillness, um, not necessarily action oriented, but acknowledging, for me anyway, acknowledging um, our psychological, emotional, and spiritual pain and being witnessed in that. Um, I know so many of our um, Israeli 
brothers and sisters felt like they needed to rush into action and start fundraising and start sending supplies and start, you know, really uh, making sure that people, families coming here could have school and, and all the different things, you know, picking the vegetables and um, setting up therapy centers in Israel, all these things, so much action. And the place of a vigil is to to pause and uh, metabolize and acknowledge just the, the brokenness and the pain. And so there was a piece of me that felt like, yes, we all were doing that in the first few weeks and trying to find the strength of Am Yisrael Chai, we will continue, we will persevere. Zach Bodner, who's the CEO of, of the OFJCC of Oshman in um, Palo Alto, kind of helped me frame um, these, these two points that were kind of oscillating, kind of like goalposts that I feel like I'm going between. One is Miluim, which is joining the reserves and being part of the effort and anything we can on this multi-front war, whether it's social media or whether it's you know, sending sandwich notes to attach to sandwiches to soldiers, or whether it's checking on our Israeli families or friends, or whether it's making sure there are scholarships for Israeli families to come to the day schools in our area. You know, all of those fronts, that's the miluim, um, stopping misinformation, making sure we have information in the JCC lobby about what's really going on, et cetera, creating seminars with journalists on the ground in Israel. We just finished a five-session um, uh Zoom program with Linda Gradstein, who was just amazing and giving us insider but clear information. So that's all the Miliwi, right? The reserves. We're on duty even from afar. On the other hand, we have Avelut, which is mourning. And I think it was Yehuda Kurtzer from um, Hartman early on helped explain the idea that when you're in, in mourning, halachically, you don't have any other obligations. You're suspended from the um, obligation to do many mitzvot. And so that side acknowledges our sort of shock, our brokenness, our, our lack of, you know, really feeling like we could do anything, our sense of powerlessness and just being in that raw emotion. And so for me during these almost six weeks, it's been this oscillation uh, hourly between these two modes. And so the vigil is, I think, on the Ave Lut, the morning side, and the rally is on the Miluim side. So Unacceptable has been an incredible leader and partner <clears throat> along with JCRC and others in our community to make sure we've had rallies across the Bay Area. We've had bring them home signs um, on, on freeway ramps. We've been in San Jose, we've been in San Francisco and there's just been incredible leadership. And at the same time, that vigil idea <clears throat> is to pause and to allow our our grief and our fear and our mourning to be heard. And again, in the spirit of our mission of the PJCC, and I would say all JCCs, we are here to build bridges of understanding. And I wanted to make sure that in some way, our pain could be really heard and understood by the wider community. I love it. That's a great uh, separation between, you know, the outward facing actions and getting into action and inward facing care and, you know, really, acknowledging the status of our people is really the onan, which is sort of like between life and death, right? They talk about that. And when someone passes along, you know, you, you don't approach that, uh, uh, the person who has survived with normal daily duties, you let them be in this otherworldly state, right? And so we're sort of vacillating between those two things constantly. Now, for someone that is looking to set this up, now you talked about the goals, right? 
Um, what would you let's say someone is in a, a different state and they want to do something like this? Walk th us through the blueprint of how you set it up, how you organized it, why you chose a church space as opposed to a synagogue or a, a mosque or a JCC, things like that. Great. So before I excuse me, before I launch into that piece, I just want to add one more um, acknowledgement, which is that my original ask to our multi-faith partners, and again, I'm a rabbi, and so I I want to sit more with the idea of what would it look like for non-clergy to be able to initiate these conversations. I'm sure it's possible, um, but I think the clergy hat sort of allowed a direct access in a, in a unique way. Um, what I first thought I was asking for um, from our clergy partners in the community was to do what I call orla goyim, to be a light to the nations, to be able to have a, you know, vigil for for humanity and hope. Because in that moment, several weeks ago, my fear was that the interfaith community would not sort of be able to continue standing with us because of how they felt about the war tactics. And so to lead from a place of humanity, really wanting our Jewish humanity to be seen and for us to actually, and for myself to be able to find hope that we were not abandoned was sort of the initial framework. And I was able to gather, you know, many clergy to kind of start that conversation. Well, between that conversation and the second Zoom, um, I had a lot of deep conversations, heavy conversations within the Jewish community and what we realized was that the real need was still to metabolize our suffering and our fear and our pain in this time. Again, this idea of being suspended on October 7th, I think in large part because of the hostage situation um, that is letting us just not move past that day. And so one of the hardest conversations I've had professionally was that second Zoom where I said to seven non-Jewish clergy, um, and three Jewish colleagues, uh, the ask I thought I was making is not the ask I need to make. And what we really need is for you to listen to your Jewish neighbors. And by that point, it became clear that there's a felt like a direct line between the attacks of October 7th and the, you know, hundreds of percent raise in anti-Semitism around the world and in California and all sorts of actions around the Bay Area. And that's really, really scary. And so, in fact, the local clergy really wanted to make sure they understood what is happening in our county. Um, there's been all sorts of resolutions that have been really scary and damaging to the Jewish community across the Bay Area. There have been all sorts of issues in high schools, Jewish students feeling unsafe. Um, of course, we all know what's going on on campuses with a lot of um, truly um, violent uh, intent um, towards Jewish students, not only Israeli students, but Jewish students on campus. And I think this is also the tension, right? For 10 months, the, the Israeli community, um, many thousands and thousands of people have been demonstrating against judicial reform in a process that feels unhelpful and backwards and um, rushed and unjust within Israel. And yet we still are all connected to the project of having a state of Israel, of having a land that is uh, for the Jewish people, maybe not exclusively, but through a lens of the Jewish peoplehood project. And so the irony of um, being sort of 
uh, shoved in in this narrative with some kind of oppressive Israeli government when many of us have been sort of speaking against this, which is, of course, the core of democracy, right, to speak out and to, to offer another way forward. And at the same time, we know these are our brothers, our sisters, our children, our best friends, our brothers-in-law. I mean, it is our community. So there's this difficult place that we diaspora Jews are in where we don't want to be associated with a very right-wing government and um, some of Bibi's allies and, and cabinet members. We really don't. And at the same time, we want people to understand that the, this is our country. So there's something in there that um, needs to be defined um, in the wider world of what is the Jewish relationship to Israel and what does it mean um, in contrast to a relationship with the Israeli government. Right. I mean, I had this conversation a couple hours ago that this idea that if you are pro-Israel, then you're 100% for everything in the government, right? And just look at our country. Talk to any American that you've ever met. Ask them, are they 100% in line with everything the government does? No, it's a democracy. Of course they're not. Does that mean they're anti-American and they want the dissolution of the United States of America? No. And so for some reason, these ideas get merged together in a what I would just call an anti-Semitic way generally, because it's like, well, either you're pro-Israel and everything or you're anti-Semitic and you and there there needs to be other options. Right. And the media definitely polarizes things in that direction. Can I just add one more piece to that, which is that one thing I so appreciated in that second conversation with these clergy leaders and colleagues Many of them have been working in, you know, interfaith space for a very long time, was this idea that, and again, not everyone agrees with this. Some denominations and some leaders and clergy weren't able to participate because they felt like it was too one-sided, which I respect, but there was a um, permission to not have every need met in one event. So many of these clergy also, and myself, of course, feel compassion for innocent Palestinians who are not part of Hamas, who are suffering in this war and under Hamas as well for the last almost 20 years. And they, there's an ability to say, and we can stand with the Jewish community about your pain. And so um, really some of those voices gave me the permission to say, okay, we don't have to have, you know, all of the pieces around praying for peace in a very generalist way in one event they can be spread out through the next couple months you know there's interfaith prayers for peace constantly in different corners there's interfaith thanksgivings coming up there's all sorts of ways where we can um broaden and narrow the lens but i felt like my responsibility from what i heard from our community was to help create a public space for vigil and to find a way for our our colleagues and our neighbors in the wider world to really hear that. So that was the goal. I love it. And how many people came, number one, and what percentage would you say of the, the kahal, the congregation, the audience, was Jewish, if you have some way of, you know, measuring that? Yeah, so 350 people RSVP'd. Um, and that is, is really quite something. It was a rainy evening and, um, many of those people did come. I think we're estimating around 300, 
Um, and today is the first sort of work day since the vigil. So uh, we haven't sort of done the uh, event bright um, data analysis, um, but you know we definitely had folks from different faith houses there. And uh, I'll say that something that felt really powerful for me was to have the clergy partners um, and also we have three elected officials, three mayors and a representative from our congressman also there and JCRC and several speakers whose families were in the attacks, some of whom are still taken hostage. But we had that initial set of clergy on the beam, it was called the chancel for a Catholic church on the stage behind the speakers. And I was really explicit that it felt like these folks have our back. And that was a powerful, powerful image. Another powerful piece of that was to have these clergy um, members actually hold up signs of the kidnapped um, folks um, and read a little bit about them. So we had about eight hostages and their their family members um, with stories shared, as well as um, someone in the community whose sister-in-law and, and her husband uh, actually kidnapped and, and held hostage. So to have um, multiple denominations be able to really focus on that crisis, I think felt really powerful. Why did we want to have this in a church? Um, we felt like this was a really important gesture of goodwill. We wanted to find that dance between the Jewish community inviting others to witness and hold space and also feeling like, wow, we can be in the real world. We can be in the non-Jewish spaces and, um, you know, and sort of show up there together. And so I'm it's just immensely grateful to St. Bartholomew's and to Father Paul for hosting. In fact, um, several several ministers had offered their spaces, but they were all under 200, and we just knew that that was going to be too small. And so we we there was one synagogue that was available to had bar mitzvah parties, and so we were about to decide to move ahead with um, one of the smaller synagogues and just do sort of standing room and high holiday setup with chairs, and it was going to be a bit crazy, but um, they were very, very generous to allow us to figure it out. And then just like Elijah the prophet or like Eliyahu, Father Paul sort of came back from two weeks uh, with his mother in Arkansas, saw the email and said, of course, of course, interfaith is so important. Of course, we would be happy to host. And so that very day I went over and um, what people who were at the vigil didn't experience because it was already dark was that when I first went, the stained glass of this church just pouring in was so powerful and beautiful. Um, and I'll say that uh, the risen Christ, the Jesus in gold, sort of over the ark with these hands up that I call Hine Matov hands, right? It was sort of like conducting the, you know, the choir, like it was just the most welcoming Christ figure I could imagine. I loved him. And so when I first went into the church, I said to Father Paul, can I just stay here for two weeks and just rest? It just felt like the first moment of peace that I, the first space of peace I had been able to find for weeks and weeks. Interesting. Yeah, I definitely felt that too. It's like a neutral space. There are not a lot of them. And so would you recommend that if someone's thinking about doing an event to specifically not do it in a Jewish space? Uh, why or why not? I think this all starts with relationships. And um, I, you know, wish that I was able to start some of these relationships sooner and whatever we can all do in our own way to build connection across difference and find common purpose and common humanity so that when there's a crisis, we can just, you know, turn to each other and plug and play and just 
sort of obviously support each other. I think that's great. Um, I think it just depends on each community, but in this in this time, it really felt like a warm embrace to invite the Jewish community to um, to another faith house and to say that we are not, you know, we're not alone. We're all connected to a sense of divinity, of holiness, of caring for each other, of having some kind of higher values, higher self, higher godliness. And I think that really um, uh, pushed back against the sense of uh, loneliness and abandonment that um, that when you look at sort of the news and the social media milieu and sort of the large dangerous feeling events that are all around, um, you know, calling for the destruction of the state of Israel and saying really mean, terrible things like Jews are Nazis and, you know, all sorts of stuff that's been going on. You know, this, this still small voice of human connection coming from shared commitment to faith in some way is important. And I'll just remind us that the word religion is from the word ligament, actually. It's connected to the word ligament. And so it's this idea of connection between people and people and people and God. And so religion is meant to bring us together. I really resist the idea that this war is a Jewish Muslim war or anything like that. I think it's a war of extremism versus compassionate humanity. And however we can um, encourage each other to be a strong middle, I think we have hope of finding common threads. Yeah, I love that. I love the ligament uh, etymology. It's beautiful. I was listening to a very short Instagram reel of Shlomo Korbach, Zichor Lebracha, who was playing at a rally in 1967 during the war. And he said, look, what's the difference between the, the pro-Israel rallies and the terrorist rallies? It's really simple. One is for life as one is for death. The Jews are waving Israeli flags and American flags. And in that time, and in this time as well, that's not happening in the pro-Hamas rallies. They're saying death to the Jews, death to Israel. The highest level of service in Islamic Jihad is death through Jihad, right? That's the highest in, in that and this is not all Muslims, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying that the difference in this is a, as you said, this is a values-based war against life, democracy, and death and jihad state. That is how I describe it. Not everyone agrees, but that's really like fundamentally. And so for those in favor of life and Western democracy and freedom values, right? There's, there is a side to take. And I really feel that strongly about that. So question, what have you noticed, if any, I know it's only been 48 hours, so it's pretty new, any outcomes or actions following the event or follow up from uh, fellow clergy members or responses? Yeah, I just wanted to go back to the way that you created the binary. And um, I think it's a very natural way to create the binary. I would maybe complicate it a little bit, though, um, because again, when we're all in the state of attack, and I've definitely felt like I've been in secondary trauma um, since October 7th, and high, high anxiety, and, you know, it's, it's, it's just been very difficult for all of us. And I know that for people who are losing family members in Gaza, it's the same. And so when we can rise out to kind of some kind of higher self and find that piece of humanity, um, that maybe is the starting point for understanding. That doesn't mean that I'm not supporting, you know, Israel's right to defense. So I, I'm now that we're past this vigil and I feel like I was able to release some of my own anxiety and trauma, I want to sort of 
um, you know, preach that as well. I want to specifically, because we didn't say it yet, um, appreciate the two different Muslim groups that were part of this vigil. And one of them, Ahmadiyya, is actually um, the main or first uh, worldwide Muslim denomination to denounce terrorism. It is completely against their understanding of, of the Quran, um, 100%. And so they've been very um, vocal in the for several weeks to, you know, Con, sort of condemn uh, terrorism. So that's really important. And we also partnered with the Pacifica Institute, um, the Turkish Muslims, who um, also kind of empathize with this idea of um, thinking that you're part of the milieu and then being turned upon. And in 2016, with the, the coup, the government coup in Turkey, they were really quite persecuted, many tens of thousands jailed, all of their schools shut down, many women and children put in jail, and they, um, their denomination really focuses on interfaith work and on service. And so uh, we're talking with Pacifica about doing, for example, a spring program where we talk about the Holocaust and the Hizmet, that's the name of their, their uh, denomination or their uh, leadership, the Hizmet persecution that they went through and what can we learn from each other. And so I really want to make sure that um, even though we have a knee-jerk reaction to the binary, we actually slow down and learn a little bit more, you know, culturally sophisticated ways to, to think about it. And at the same time, there were also some Christian denominations that I was sort of surprised and had to work through my disappointment that they didn't feel like they could be at this event because they felt like it was one-sided and they didn't want to sort of accidentally look like they're supporting the Israeli government when that wasn't a comfortable position for them. So I'm working on, you know, finding respect for that too. So that's just what I want to say about complicating the binary. Cool. I got it. Okay. I did notice that. So there was, it was covered by a couple of news channels. I'm not sure if the same video was shown on both, but I did see one, uh, which I was really happy to, to ha have that happen. Everyone should know that Saul was highlighted both on guitar and in piano. And that's a great segue to say that it was just to uh, pun it a little instrumental for me to uh, make sure my friend Saul Kay here uh, was part of the fabric of this program. Um, I, some of you know I have a classical music background and just am a bit obsessed with Jewish music. And so in the middle of the nights when I dreamt this up um, over and over again, there were four specific songs that um, I, I felt would move us through this experience. And, and we should say that we we use the framework of Havdalah, of going from darkness to light. Um, we started by sharing the Midrash about Adam and Eve on that very first night of their lives when the sun went down and it was pitch dark and Adam thought it was the end of the world and he thought it was his fault. And Eve cried, Kenegdo, Eve cried across from him and they fasted and wept. And then lo and behold, the sun came up. And they figured out that, you know, this is the way of the world and they gave a Thanksgiving. Um, and so this idea that everything feels so dark that the world is ending, but then the light comes back really for me resonates with this idea of Havdalah. Shabbat is ending. It is the most devastating thing for Shabbat to end, right? In a certain way, okay. um, no matter what you're doing on Sunday. And so to have the rituals of 
the sweet wine and to talk about stories of hope and connection and sweetness between people um, and, and lifting up some examples there. You know, there's the famous, now famous story of uh, the Muslim Israeli Arab in Lod near the airport who put a mezuzah on his door to make sure his Jewish um, make sure his Jewish patrons felt safe. Holocaust survivor, 92 years old, who was hidden uh, when she was two years old in Germany, uh, actually sewing dolls for children who were evacuated from the South and other stories like that. So that was sort of the sweetness of the wine. And then we moved into the flame and the Havdalah candle. We had speakers of um, uh, unacceptable and um, just all the work done in civil civil society. We also talked about reigniting the flame to fight against anti-Semitism, where our three mayors spoke um, with what they've gone through. It's actually been a very difficult time to be an elected official, um, a Jewish elected official, and there's a lot of hatred going towards them and representing what the constituents, what the high school students, what the families are going through. Um, but sort of to fight back against that. And, and that song to me was Banu Choshe the famous Hanukkah song about we each have a small flame, but when we work together, that huge fire can actually bring light to the world in a different way. Um, and, and then we closed with the bisamim and the spices and the idea of inhaling and exhaling and letting go of this intense experience and maybe for some of us an intense six weeks um, and closing with all the clergy and all the guests, all the stories coming up together and having this Eliyahu Elijah moment of, of seeing a better world, of you know, seeing a Shabbat, a world that is all Shabbat in the future, right? And we sang with your leadership, you know, one verses from one day by Matis Yahu into Odiavo Shalom. And so that I think I just wanted to lift up how the music um, really moved us through. We forgot to mention Ali Ali, which we shared after um, the stories of the hostages as well. So those were the four songs we used. I'm sure all of us who might lead such a vigil have our own sort of soul favorites. And I encourage you to think about how music can help um, shape the event and give space for people to process as well. Especially if you have a lot of people talking that, that are sort of talking in a similar tone, like you start to shut off. So you could have, you know, from a musician's perspective, audio dynamics, melodic dynamics and contour. And then those little moments of music are where you kind of absorb, you know, you just a process. Um, also, we, we played a beautiful melody for Shomer Yisrael, which is definitely a good yes. mention. And you mentioned a, a, a nonprofit, I think, a couple times. I wanted to just make sure I, I heard this right. I think it's called Unacceptable. Is that, a, is that an organization? Because you said that so fast. Tell people what that is and how that's related. Sure. Yeah. It is the... Um, international arm of um, of the protest movement in Israel that was fighting against, uh, or standing, I should not fighting, but standing peacefully and democratically and loudly against uh, these judicial reforms that were being pushed through by Netanyahu's government, which seemed to be paused for the moment, but no one's really sure um, exactly how you know civil society is going to continue after the war. Um, and so there has been just a local outpouring from all the Israelis in, you know, in our community here in Silicon Valley and really across the world to make sure that there is um, uh, awareness of kind of the dangers of that path of making radical change. I mean, many of us here 
I remember 2016 and, and, you know, those years of how quickly things can get taken away, the fall of Roe, et cetera. And so is that urgency um, with which Unacceptable wanted to have um, an international presence as well. If you're an Israeli not living in Israel, you do not get to vote unless you are on a certain kind of visa, a certain kind of visa through the, the Sohnud. And if you're a Shaliach, and you're working as sort of an emissary of the Jew, of the Israeli government. And someone recently, uh, a Mexican Israeli living here, told me that you know he finds it so infuriating that he has to pay taxes on a rental car in Israel as if he's a citizen, but doesn't get to vote. He said it's taxation without representation. So I think this idea of an unacceptable creating. Um, a movement abroad to bring awareness to these issues and to allow Israelis to have a voice abroad. Now, since the war started, um, Unacceptable has really pivoted um, on the ground in Israel to being a Hamal, which is sort of like a, a war room situation room, and really doing a lot of the intense work that the government hasn't been doing, looking for hostages, combing social media, you know, even finding hotel rooms for evacuees, and, you know, all of the things in civil society, setting up meals, setting up Again, therapy centers, et cetera, um, that group of leaders completely pivoted to leading the country. And here abroad, the unacceptable movement has been just at the core of um, advocacy for releasing hostages, both in the community and wherever possible in government conversations. So please check them out. And um, they've been on many, many podcasts now, but uh, they have been amazing thought partners in how do we bring the story of the hostages into whether it's a vigil or a rally to make sure that we're centering this is the action. You know, I talked about the psychology of allowing allowing ourselves to mourn, but the action is to put pressure to get get these folks released. Yeah. Okay. That that perfectly dovetails into my next question and comment. So I noticed that in the CBS news piece, it starts out with a ceasefire Gaza rally, then features the event, and then it is bookended at the end with a woman talking about Islamophobia here in the Bay Area and the uptick of those sorts of events. So my question to you is, do you agree that the, the news downplays the hostage situation and anti-Semitism with Islamophobia here in America? And how can we refocus the narrative back to, let's get these people home? We appreciate the media coverage of this vigil. Um, we understand that you know, it's not a news story unless there's a little bit of tension and release. Um, and so I believe that that is why um, that clip of um, three different ceasefire, um, you know, sort of rallies. I mean, some of the one of them was just sort of a free Palestine. That was the middle one. And then there was a ceasefire. And then there was someone, I think, in Israel sort of drumming. I suppose that's what the media feels like they need to do. I would have loved to just go straight into the vigil on its own accord. Um, I know that some of our, our you know, partners in the room felt like they could be there um, in a strong but quiet way. And we're not really 
interested in speaking with the press. So I believe that's why um, uh, the clip that you're referring to was there. And yes, we should fight against extremism. As I said, radical Islam and Islamophobia are both problems. Israel, you know, uh, Jewish extremism in the form of is, you know, really badly behaved, problematic activities by settlers, um, and is really hurts Israel's cause. I wish it could stop right away because not everyone is behaving in the most moral way, and it really, really hurts our cause. So, um, I, I really just want to stand against extremism and ask people to come to their senses and focus on, you know, what can be done for humanity. And and you know, Israel is in a difficult situation as always, where we want to have the highest moral ground because that's what our tradition encourages us, and we're also trying to be in this impossible situation of, you know, um, getting through this period. And we've been in through other wars and it's really, really difficult. And um, I, I don't want any humans to have to be persecuted. I'll leave it at that. You know, it's 45 days into the war and most of the hostages, except for a few that have passed away, unfortunately, or been murdered, are still in captivity. How can we continue to put that in the the public sphere to really push that. I did see amazing billboards crossing uh, the bridge the other day, and I personally put up flyers on UC Berkeley campus, although they get torn down, which I still don't entirely understand. What can we do to help, and what can someone that's listening do to help? Definitely. Um, first, I would say, you know, try to get on an unacceptable um, uh, email list or WhatsApp group in your local area. There's chapters all over the place and they are truly, you know, mobilizing the community for awareness. Another thing you can do is the website, I think is one min, I M I N. So O N E M I N a day. And that is taking a minute a day to call your electeds, um, and to really just continue to put, put pressure where we can, right. And so this idea of being a known entity and that these 240 people um, are all people that we know, that we know people who know them, we know their family members. And so the more we can humanize and actually get the names out there, I have to believe that, you know, that kind of pressure and influence and even energy makes a difference. So one minute a day. And then really, I'll, I'll share what our um, our journalist friend in Jerusalem has said, and Linda Gradstein in her five sessions, which is that we have to write more op-eds. We have to get the story out. We have to understand that um, there's a huge machine um, on the other side who is very strategic, and, and we just need to not be afraid. I mean, many of us are, are just afraid to sort of out ourselves Jewishly in a certain sense. And it's a time to try to figure out how can you use your voice? You know, to quote our friend Alana Arian's song, I have a voice, my voice is powerful, my voice will change the world. So hopefully you can use uh, that song as the out outro, right? But uh, we have to find a way to write these stories, to share these stories and to, you know, keep Going back to me, Louis, right? Go back to the reserves and understand that we we can all um, keep that awareness up. We don't know what's going to happen. We clearly have no influence on the Qatari hostage negotiators, but we can make sure that um, our our local um, representatives understand the stories. And that's also why it was so important to have both civic and multi faith leaders at this vigil. 
I love it. Okay. And also in the, in the YouTube or the podcast link for this event, I'll put a way to download all the flyers for free of the hostages. If you want to do something with it, it's free. It's a website. I forget what the name of the website is, but I'll put a link there for you to download it for free. And so I definitely want to say something about that, but I want to ask you two other questions. What is your hope for what happens next? Oh, saw. First of all, I hope that this multi-faith group can stay together and support each other when needed. And that, um, you know, it took a lot of courage for me to ask for, for these folks to stand with us, but I hope that those relationships can grow because again, as sort of moderate people of faith, I, I think that we've got to be a much more cohesive alliance against evil and darkness and terrorism that, um, you know, we're able to get as as many hostages as released as soon as possible and i hope that you know the leaders of israel can find a way to sort of stay strong and also um i understand that sort of our diaspora jewish um experience is is difficult as this war goes on and you know we're really having a brunt of um anti-israel and anti-semitic backlash here, you know, um, our brothers and sisters in Israel are on the front lines with their with mortal danger. Um, but I feel like the psychological effect and, and danger here has just been really huge. And by here, I mean anywhere outside of Israel, you know, talk to people, Jewish people who have family all over the world. And there's really the sense of we don't know where to go. Um, there, where, what, what will we do? What could we do? And so we are in an existential crisis and, and we do have to make sure that, you know, we keep our Jewish values of humanity um, and B'Tselem Elohim, that everyone is made in the image of God. We have to lead from that somehow, given the situation we're in. So the war should end, the hostages should come home, and um, we should find a way for uh, leaders within the Jewish people and within Israeli society who are capable of leading with nuance to, to be the ones who have the voice. I love it. Well, if I might add a little, I feel that this event, October 7th, has uh, awoken the Jewish spirit and awoken the, what they call the pentalogia, the spark inside of, of, of the Jew that is waiting to come out. And whether or not you can name it, you can feel it. It's a feeling, it's energy. We all have this extra level of energy. And I personally want to encourage people to dive more deeply into your Jewish practice, whatever that means for you. We all have different practices. It's a pluralistic podcast, you know, all, all uh, spectrum of the Jewish world. Take on something else. Light Shabbat candles. Give some tzedakah. Like everything that we do actually matters. Not that it didn't matter before this, but somehow this event sharpened the contrast on our life and our Jewish life. And all of us have been enlisted in this fight. We're all in it. So well, I always want to encourage people from my little platform here of the Holy Sparks podcast, find a lane that's most resonant with you. You know, mine happens to be this and prayer and music. And maybe your, your lane is, is cooking. Maybe your lane is just calling people, checking in, visiting people. The people that I know, and I have very close family in Israel and people that are in the IDF, they tell me whenever we talk, we feel your prayers. We feel your energy. We actually feel it on the front line at our home. We need it. And so they need it. So whatever 
as I'm speaking and you're listening to my voice, there is something that's arising in you, something that you could do, right? And it's not for me to do or Rabbi Lori to do, it's for you to do. So I definitely want to encourage you to pick a lane. And if you don't know what to do, you can always reach out to reach out to Rabbi Lori, reach out to me. You're like, hey, what do I do? I want to help. You know, I'm enlisting. How can I help? What can I do? And, you know, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel was asked, why did he march with MLK with the Torah on the Freedom Walk? Because sometimes you have to pray with your feet. And so I also want to put a call out here in this interfaith, multi-faith vigil recap is that if you are in another faith and you need us, call on us. We would love that call. We would welcome that call. Yeah. That's what you do that. This is what we do, right? This is part of our mission of Tikkun Olam, repairing the world. And uh, I want to say, Yasha uh, Koa, congratulations on a great event. I know a lot of people were very, very moved and it, it provided a really sweet container to just feel, to just be in the feelings and also gave some people platforms to speak about families that need some help. We'll put some links below. There's a fundraiser going on for a particular family that literally lost everything. Uh, and to reach out, reach up, and reach to your neighbor because we all need to connect more. Any last words, Rabbi Lori? As yes. Thank you. Thank you, Saul, for doing this. I'm glad we're able to capture this moment um, and hopefully help others empower empower you to, you know, reach out to your community. Here's how I want to end. Um, we are in Northern California, Saul and I. And as I said at the vigil, you know, we like locally grown here. And so one piece that I that I did that anybody can do, um, all of the, uh, I think there were 16 faith houses total. Um, some were there in spirit and, and some were there um, physically. Um, but all of those leaders submitted to me verses of comfort from their tradition. And with the help of Rabbi Alana Zelani and my colleague Rebecca Schwartz, and I sort of slowly wove it together into a prayer. And so what I'd like to uh, end with is just a couple of these verses the first is from Corinthians. It was submitted by a nun from the Sisters of Mercy in Burlingame. The next is from the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad, which was submitted by our imam friend from Ahmadiyya Muslim community that I mentioned. And the third is from St. Francis of Assisi, who I think was submitted by a Mus uh, uh, Methodist um, minister. So I want to weave these together and leave it as a blessing for comfort, again, um, from our shared tradition of, of focusing on finding um, connection through holiness. So here it goes. Praise be to the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. O oh God, you are the bestower of every form of peace. It is in truly knowing you that hearts can find lasting comfort. Make us promoters of comfort for others and save us from any deed, word, or thought that destroys peace. God, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. Amen to that. Amen. Be strong and be gentle, everyone, with yourself and with those you meet.
Thank you so much, Rabbi Lori. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. And have a blessed rest of your day, blessed week, and a sweet Thanksgiving if you celebrate. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Holy Sparks Podcast. I'm your host, Saul Kay. Please subscribe. It helps the podcast. Share this with friends and family whom you think would be inspired by the content. And we will see you on our next episode.